The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Jill Shaw. I'm a credit reporter at Bloomberg. Today's guests are David Brooke, who covers private credit at Bloomberg News in New York, and Steve Flynn, who looks at telecom in the media sector for Bloomberg Intelligence. Let's get to it. We're going to dive into the opaque world of private credit today, which is a $1.4 trillion market in the U.S. Private credit lenders are in talks to arrange the buyout financing of a healthcare technology firm, And this would be the largest buyout financing ever arranged by direct lenders, as they're known. So, David, tell us what this means. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, certainly. I mean, very much the big trend in private credit is that the the deals are getting larger and larger. So more money raised by private credit funds has meant that they can deploy huge amounts of cash. Now they're in direct competition with with the broadly syndicated leveraged loan market, which historically their roots were in the middle market. So underwriting a 5.5 billion unit tranche is a kind of extraordinary achievement if it can be done by these private credit lenders um, who are sitting on huge amounts of cash. Um, and it will just continue this trend where private credit can be an available option for a lot of sponsors who are looking to kind of do larger and larger buyouts. So let's talk about this. Why might a deal like this go private instead of to the broadly syndicated market? Well, the private credit lenders like to tell you firstly, we bring certainty of execution. That's their kind of marketing ploy, their marketing line. It's true because if you go to a broadly syndicated market, um, banks will have to sort of originate a loan and distribute it to a bunch of investors. Those investors, you know, maybe the investor sentiment can very much change. Mm. It could be price flex. There could be changes on terms, et cetera, et cetera, which doesn't provide that certainty. If you go to a group of four or five lenders then you can get the price turns done very quickly. And for a lot of sponsors, speed is very, very important. Mm. So a private credit transaction can be done very, very quickly, and it can be done um, with a small group of lenders. Especially when the markets were so volatile this year, this was a big option for people. Uh, so what happened in 2022 in terms of the market share that private credit had against the mar- uh, the BSL market? Well, market share certainly increased. <laughs> um, I mean, if... If the broadly syndicated loan market is not doing any deals, then certainly it might be 100% of the market or, you know, a la- certainly a larger sort of share of the market themselves. And private credit funds were not immune to some of the volatility, um, certainly in private markets. Um, there can be a lag in terms of responding to macroeconomic volatility compared with the sort of public markets. But private credit firms are still very much, they sit on huge funds, their cash is sticky, so they're ready to always deploy cash. And they always always say they underwrite in kind of recessionary models as well Hmm. so that you know, um, they can provide. They can always kind of provide that capital when this kind of sponsor needs it. Private credit funds, though, um, dialed back their hold sizes. Essentially, if... 
a two billion unit tranche had four lenders offering five hundred million, it might then be eight lenders doing two hundred and fifty million. Mm. So a, a, a multi billion dollar unit tranche was still feasible, but it might require more and more lenders. And <laughs> in a one point four trillion market, there is no shortage of lenders out there. There are certainly a lot of appetite for the best deals um, going. So. Um, yeah, they dialed back their hold sizes. But private credit was also able to win better terms. So pricing and loans went up, and already they're more expensive than broadly syndicated markets, and certainly tied to documentation as well. And that's after many, many years of sponsors having the upper hand. So suddenly we had a real kind of pivot in sentiment in private credit firms being able to kind of um, win more deals from the broadly syndicated, I would have gone to the broadly syndicated market, and also kind of get that extra benefits of better terms and better pricing. Mm. And this Code of E D deal right now, which is the which would be the biggest private credit deal uh, ever if it were to get done, um, is this sort of, you know, private credit lenders coming into uh uh, sort of take market share while the leveraged loan market is rallying? Because the leveraged loan market is doing pretty well right now. Yes. Well, firstly, I never like to use superlatives in private credit because anything that's the biggest, <laughs> it could not be the biggest. There mm. could be something else out there that we don't secretly know. Mm. But no, I, I take it very much what we've kind of reported on. It certainly would be the biggest and mm. certainly talking to people in the market, I, it, it would be the biggest. I think... It's kind of interesting because when the leveraged loan market has been rallying or whether it's kind of um, gone quiet, private credit has still grown in this kind of structural mm. way. I think we're seeing a structural change in markets, in credit markets especially, where like um, both the kind of models kind of complement each other very much. And as you can see, the broadly syndicated market just kind of disappears a little bit or shuts down. Private credit's there to fill in the void. But... With the broadly syndicated market coming back, private credit can still find there's still that kind of, as I was talking about, the certainty of execution, not relying on investor sentiment. And um, there's certain types of transactions now that are very popular in private credit that just won't really go to the bank. So there's something called annual recurring revenue loans that are very much popular in the software sector. Um, can you describe a bit what that is? <laughs> it's, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's really just, I think you can just kind of boil it down to as like a, quasi type of venture type transaction this is a very these are very fast growing companies they're often software companies um, and they're having negative cash flows so it's very much hard to kind of use the traditional uh, debt um, leverage metrics mm. bank that's not something good for banks but it's very good for private credit funds who are a lot more um, nimble with their cash and private credit funds will then say okay we'll do the loans on a kind of lower LTV so 20 to 30 percent and the model is that um, that the, the sponsor has a higher equity cushion so in order for their debt to be hurt they have to have um you know, an 80% wipeout of equity before even the debt is kind of spent. Um, I think on top of that as well, um, there's a kind of EBITDA positive covenant included in it as well. So whilst it's cash flow for a certain amount of time, companies expected to grow 20, 30%, et cetera, et cetera, um, and then eventually flip over to a positive cash flow and then repay that debt. Mm. So that's the that's the kind of model of ARR loans. That's yeah. certainly a riskier structure than we've seen in sort of the broadly syndicated market. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can certainly say riskier. These guys won't say it's riskier. <laughs> it's 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 really. I mean, the thesis is it's lower LTVs, mm. um, so therefore you kind of got a lot of equity deterioration before you get to any kind of loss of debt mm. or or loss on your loans. So um, and the companies are 
they'll say fast growing. You know, there's a lot of kind of tech companies are building up a lot of like, I don't know, technologization of uh, of the way we kind of do work nowadays. Um, so very much there's a lot of this growth of these companies that are kind of coming up now. So um, yeah, it could certainly. Um, it could be riskier in the sense that now that if we're seeing a kind of slowdown in the economy, the growth models, which, you know, if you're talking about 20, 30 percent, suddenly come down to 10 or 15 percent or, you know, even lower than that, then certainly, yes, the LTV that you're saying is 20, 30 percent goes up slightly. Sure. But certainly if it's still growing, that's a kind of more of an equity question. The debt still very much is a senior secured debt and um, very much, uh, yeah, still needs repaying, even if it still is repaid, even if the growth is slowed down. So let's talk about this potentially a period of slower economic growth that we might be entering. Um, private credit lenders buy these loans to hold. Um, and it's hard to tell how these private companies are doing, but you have a sense. How are the private companies uh, in the, the private credit market doing? Well, private credit likes a few sectors that do well. Uh, Recession-proof, however recession-proof. Yeah, it's, it's another question. <laughs> but they like they like tech, like software. So as we kind of discussed, they like business services and um, they like healthcare. And these are really three strong sectors that a lot of them will tell you have performed very well during recessions. So even when you get a slowdown in the economy, the companies they're kind of backing um, should be in a good spot. On top of that as well, um, sponsors are kind of backing it. So there's a lot of sponsor capital in that. So say when we had the coronavirus and a lot of kind of, you know, sectors of the economy shut down essentially overnight, the way private credit lenders and the way um, private equity sponsors kind of work together is there's a lot of like kind of changing of loan terms, amending of loan terms, or the sponsor would put more money in, or in some cases the lender would put more money in. So you already saw kind of an example of what would happen during a recession, during COVID, and maybe something Similar in the partnerships between uh, private equity and private credit might happen again because, as we talked about before, private equity is dealing with two or three lenders. The lenders might like the company and might say, oh, during this recession, you might be tr struggling a little bit, but later on, um, might fundamentals of the company might be very good. I think also default rates in the private credit it depends how you who you kind of go to, but um, we've got ranges from two to four percent in the private credit market, mm. um, which is still kind of quite low. So um, and People I speak to don't anticipate it getting shooting up too high. Um, certainly in the BDCs as well, what's called non-accrual rates, which is also just the measure of defaults and just not too high. So what are BDCs? <laughs> what are BDCs? Um, yes, I think you get a lot of ABCs or BDCs, and perhaps I should do one myself as well. Um, um, BDCs are a vehicle to lend. Um, so it's really um, private... You have your traditional private equity fund structure, raise ten million from ten billion from investors, and then go and spend it. It's the same with BDCs. Private credit firms raise a bunch of money; they put it into a BDC vehicle. A BDC vehicle, which I like as a reporter, is that they're public. Right. <laughs> so all their loans are public. All the terms of the loan are public. So we can kind of poke through and see um, exactly what. Um, investors are exposed to. BDCs can either be publicly listed, on which the majority are, or there's, there's a growing trend, a lot of them are privately listed. Um, and it's kind of growing as much as more. And then BDCs, unlike kind of your closed-ended funds, your private equity style closed-ended funds, they're available to your retail investors. So me and you can go and buy some shares in a BDC and get exposure to private credit. Um, or you could do it through a private BDC, and uh, and in terms of payouts in a private BDC, is through quarterly redemptions as well. Well, 
Um, thank you, David. We look forward to hearing a lot more about private credit. Um, you can read all of the news and analysis from David Brook on the Bloomberg ter- Terminal or at Bloomberg.com. Switching gears a bit here to the world of telecommunications and media, as I mentioned earlier, we are very lucky to have Steve Flynn from Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Steve, one of the deals on your radar right now, the Roger Shaw deal, uh, give us a sense of who these companies are and what the deal is. Sure. So um, Rogers and Shaw, two of the largest communications companies um, in Canada, and this also includes uh, Quebecor, uh, which is uh, also a large um, media company or communications company in Canada. So Rogers, Shaw, and Quebecor recently extended the outside date for their proposed transactions until March 31st. So just just to interrupt you there, what's the outside date? The outside date is kind of like your merger termination date, and they've extended it a couple of times. As, you know, this deal was announced almost two years ago in mm-hmm. March 2021, so it'll take about two years to get this deal done, which is, uh, you know, communications deals take a long time because there's a lot of regulatory reviews to get them done, uh, but this is going to be a long deal uh, at two years. So what we're hoping is that they'll soon receive the final regulatory approval from Canada Industry Minister uh, Champagne. And once he's approved, they can close the deals. And Rogers will purchase Shaw for about $26 billion, which includes about $20 billion. This is Canadian dollars. Uh, $20 billion Canadian for Shaw shares and the assumption of about $6 billion Canadian of Shaw debt. Um, the companies are going to turn around and sell... Um, uh, Shaw's Freedom Mobile business to Quebecor for 2.85 billion Canadian. So the proceeds will help, you know, reduce the debt load. But the, you know, the pro forma company, Pro Forma Rogers, once this deal is done, is going to be really large and and highly leveraged. It's going to have about 50 billion Canadian in debt and a leverage ratio of about five times. Um, and as a result, Rogers now is rated uh, high triple B. It's BAA one uh, from Moody's and triple B plus from both S and P and Fitch. And uh, those ratings are going to be downgraded by one to two notches um, based on rater commentary. So do these companies have a plan to sort of improve those credit metrics after this merger? Correct. They're targeting lower leverage, and they're going to get there through a combination of higher EBITDA, some of that driven from cost synergies. They've outlined a significant number of cost synergies to take out. Um, as a result of combining the two companies. And then also, I expect them to use excess free cash flow to reduce debt. So they're going to deleverage over the next couple of years. And it's interesting. So if you compare where the Rogers US dollar bonds trade now, they they trade at uh, G spreads that are kind of right in the middle of the pack of triple B rated communications companies. Um, you know, they're, they're wider than some of the highest quality names like AT&T, Disney, and Verizon. And they're also tighter than some of the more speculative names like, like Charter, Secured Bonds, Paramount, or Warner Brothers Discovery. So they're kind of like right in the middle of the pack. Um, and that's probably where they're going to be rated, you know, sort of mid to low triple B. Hmm. So they're going to maintain their status in the middle of the pack, not sort of start trading lower because of this this erosion of credit metrics? It's expected for the deal to close, so I think it's pretty much factored into the spreads where they are now. Now, if they execute and they um, delever over the next couple of years and 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 bring the co- and successfully integrate the two companies, I would imagine that their credit spreads will improve along with their credit metrics. So let's talk a bit about a company that is trading at distress levels, and that's Lumen. Um, that stock is down almost 25% year-to-date. Um, is the company in trouble? Yeah, so, you know, Lumen... <laughs> Lumen has been pretty hit, hit pretty hard, both in the equity and uh, debt markets. So the equity market cap is now below $4 billion. We look about a year ago, it was $13 billion, so that's a big drop. And now many of its unsecured bonds will, tr- will yield as much as 16 to 20%. So, 
it's getting into pretty dicey uh, territory there. That said, you know, Lumen does have adequate uh, liquidity for the next few years, given a couple things. Number one, it's cash on hand. It has an untapped revolving credit line. Um, it has a deal to sell its European business. And the company has minimal debt maturities until 2025. So even though the, you know, the, the stock and the bonds have been hit here, I think uh, near term, they look okay from a liquidity perspective. Tell me a bit about the company and why has the outlook deteriorated? Um, and what does it tell us broadly about companies in this sector? Sure. So uh, Lumen is kind of a legacy, mostly wireline communications company. So the peers include like Frontier Communications, Windstream, uh, Consolidated Communications. And this whole sector has uh, been under uh, pressure for several years now due to you know high debt loads, um, business trends whereby they're losing a lot of migration of clients to, to wireless, competition from cable, etc. And, and they also, all of them had high dividend payout ratios, which they've kind of cut. I mean, Lumen just recently eliminated its dividend. So they, they have been under pressure. Um, and plus, you know, in when you're providing communication services, there's always a high level of capital um, investment. You have to keep up with your competitors. So, for example, like, like um, Lumen is trying to deliver higher broadband speeds to their clients. So they're upgrading a lot of their customers to, to fiber. Uh, so they can remain competitive with, uh, you know, their wireline and cable uh, competitors. Um, now, to be fair, Lumen has taken a number of steps to better position the company. Uh, they executed two major asset sales in 2022. I mentioned they, they announced a third asset sale of the European business, which should close hopefully in late 2023. Uh, they're embarking on a fiber upgrade plan. They eliminated the dividends on their common shares, and they recently installed a new management team. Um, so they're trying to do things, but let's remember that their credit profile is likely to weaken uh, this year. The company on February 7th uh, announced that they expect uh, adjusted EBITDA to drop 13 to 17% this year, and that's going to push leverage uh, likely above four times, where it will probably stay through 2024. Um, so now the co company expects revenue and EBITDA to uh, return to growth by the end of 2024 and be higher in 2025. But I believe most investors are pretty skeptical that the company can return to growth. Yeah, asset sales, dividend cuts. I feel like this is going to become the playbook for companies this year as they try to deal with high debt loads and rising interest costs. Is that kind of what you're seeing too? Correct. Now, you know, the year started off pretty strong for debt issuance. So I think a few companies sort of said, hey, you know, and in, in, particularly in high yield, you, you tap the market when you can, right? Not when you need to. And so the market was open earlier this year. We saw a few companies tap um, both the, the high grade and high yield markets um, to get cash because you're right. If you have upcoming maturities and, you know, it's going to be expensive to borrow, if it gets more expensive, the longer you wait, the bigger trouble you could be in. So, yes, I think. And then if you can't borrow money, another way to, to raise capital is obviously asset sales, which is something people can do. And leadership changes are also sort of on the horizon for a lot of these companies as they deal with this changing economic environment. Uh, one big name is that Bob Iger has come back as the CEO of Disney. So what are you looking at in terms of major changes for Disney's financial position, their credit profile? Sure. So um, Iger has announced a number of steps which should improve Disney's financial performance and credit profile. Um, number Now, their net leverage is pretty high when you include the minority interest, which you should. Uh, it's a little bit high at 3.7 times, uh, but that can improve over the next year, I think. So Iger has set up a, a couple of steps. Number one, he's restructuring the company to three main seg segments. Number two, he's targeting $5.5 billion of cost savings. 
And number three, he's striving for Disney Plus to be profitable by the end of fiscal 2024. Now, Disney Plus, like a lot of streaming businesses, are a drag on the company's operations because there's big investment <coughs> required um, in the beginning. So, and one other thing that we're really keeping our eye on is a major financial catalyst that's on the horizon, which is what happens with Hulu. So Disney owns 67% of Hulu, yet um, Comcast owns 33%. And what's going on with that ownership? Like, are they are they going to try to sell off that stake in Hulu? Well, what's interesting is this is really going to come to a head in um, likely early 2024, because come January 2024, Disney has the right to exercise a call option on Comcast's 33% stake, and Comcast has a, has a put option that it could exercise at the same time to put its stake to Disney. So it would seem logical that if either party exercises their option, you know, come early 2024, that um, the 33% stake would go from Comcast to Disney with a potential valuation in the low $9 billion area. So this is a, you know, this is a, a, a big price tag here. Um, and the agreement will be valued um, based on fair market value of Hulu with a floor market for overall Hulu of $27 billion, which says a 33% stake is you know, in the low $9 billion area. Um, so you know, that's what could happen. Now, there's a, what's interesting on February 7th, or February 9th, excuse me, uh, Bob Iger said in an interview that he's open-minded uh, with regard to Hulu, and he said that Disney buying out Comcast is not necessarily the case. So I think there's a chance we could see kind of a flip of the script there where um, instead of Disney buying out Comcast, maybe they strike a deal for the other way that Comcast buys out Disney's uh, two-thirds stake or they turn around and sell Hulu. Yeah, it seems like these streaming platforms have been really difficult for some of these legacy media companies to catch up on. Uh, so curious what we should be looking out for in terms of Disney, Netflix, all of these sort of streaming companies. Obviously, Netflix has a huge leg up. Yeah, so, and, and Netflix is free cash flow positive, right? So a big step for Netflix was to um, turn free cash flow positive. They said they're at sustained positive free cash flow, which is a big step for them. Uh, their credit profile is, is very good. Um, the big catalyst we're waiting for now is for Moody's to upgrade that to IG. So S&P's already there. Um, we're waiting for Moody's, the next step, which should hopefully happen soon. And um, that's what's going on with Netflix. Other companies, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery still um, burning a lot in streaming. Paramount is still burning a lot in streaming. We talk about Disney still burning a lot in streaming. So, yes, it's still a big investment for a lot of these companies. And, and consolidation probably does make sense. And partly, of course, Netflix has the leg up because a lot of the debt they took on in order to uh, sort of grow as much as they did was in this low interest rate era. And now we are in an era of higher interest rates. And so if you're still in that growth phase in terms of your streaming platform, you have a natural disadvantage to someone like Netflix. Uh, correct. And, and Netflix is high yield and raised raise most of its money in the high yield market, but they have very low coupons. You're exactly right, because they did it at a time when uh, the junk bar market yields were much lower than they are today. But hopefully for Netflix, you know, when they get up to IG, it's a deeper pool of capital. It's a lower cost pool of capital. If they do need to go back to the markets to, you know, refinance and maturity in a couple of years, they should hopefully have no problem doing it. Awesome. Thanks very much to Steve Flynn from Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks also to David Brooke from Bloomberg News. Read all his scoops on the private credit market on the Terminal and Bloomberg.com. I'm Jill. Thanks for joining us. See you next week on The Credit Edge. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.